Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that. Biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Thank you all for joining us again for another edition of Theology Matters with Blues. Glad you guys could join us, and uh, we have a good, good store, uh, good show in store for you guys today. 
as uh, we are going to have my friend uh, Pastor Jacob Ali on, and we are going to be looking at uh, the life and works in theology of C.S. Lewis. Now, uh, I don't know if there's anyone more quoted than C.S. Lewis uh, from all kinds of different people. I mean, Christians, non-Christians, you see apologists uh, love C.S. Lewis, pastors love C.S. Lewis, children love C.S. Lewis. Uh, The guy was just an incredible mind and uh, great thinker. And I'm really looking forward to this show, kind of delving in a little deeper uh, into into some of the life and and thinking and the works of uh, of C.S. Lewis. So be sure to stay with us for that. Uh, we are uh, on Facebook. Uh, if you've not liked us, please go to facebook.com/theologymatterswiththepalooz. Facebook.com/theologymatterswiththepalooz. And uh, if you go there, what you'll find is a lot of different um, shows that we've done over the last, I want to say almost two years uh, we've been doing the show. And uh, we've had some very amazing guests on, and we've covered a whole variety of different theological and apologetic issues. Uh, We've done Demonology with Shandon Guthrie. Uh, we have done numerous shows on the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And uh, actually very excited that the 19th of this month, we are going to uh, do a show with my friend Jonathan McClatchy. More, more on him in a minute. Uh, but we are going to do a show on Islam and just kind of doing an overview of what is the difference between Orthodox Christianity and Islam, the view of God, the view of Jesus, uh, the holy books, right? What's our authority uh, between the the two camps? And uh, I'm telling you, folks, things are heating up around the world, and uh, Islam is a force to be reckoned with. Now, I don't put all Muslims in the category of terrorists or anything like that, um, but... I do absolutely think uh, it is a false religion. I absolutely uh, believe that they, uh, they will, of course, admit, uh, reject fundamental uh, truths of the, of the Bible. And we live in a day and age where everybody wants to be politically correct and, you know, whatever you believe is true for you, but, you know, it's not what the Bible says, is it? The Bible says that there's one God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ uh, is God's son, that God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Of course, Islam also believes there's one God, but they believe that to elevate Jesus Christ to the status of deity or God uh, is blasphemy. So, just basic laws of logic, both cannot be true, can they? So it's not about being a bigot, it's just about being logical and rational. And so, uh, you know, Christians, uh, we need to know how to, how to engage our Muslim friends. Uh, I, I think sometimes we get very angry, we get agitated at some of the stuff we see on the news. And instead of loving our, our Muslim neighbors, um, we're ready to start praying some imprecatory psalms and seeing the wrath of God come down on their head, which 
you know, the time will come when God does that. And, and of course, but for the grace of God, there we would be also. What I would personally like to see is a uh, a big revival among Muslims coming to Christ. And I've heard from uh, Muslim or Christian missionaries in, in Muslim nations that uh, when, where the Bible is preached and the gospel is preached, uh, that Christ is doing some amazing things. He's He's appearing in visions, and Muslims are converting. I don't know the specifics to be able to, you know, give you exactly how many and and where that is all at. Um, but uh, you know, I've heard from people who were there, and so you know, I take them at uh, take them at face value at that. I do believe that uh, God still, you know, does miracles today that He can show Himself to people. And I don't think it's a norm. Right? I'm not saying that it's happened all the time. I'm not a uh, word of faith person. I'm not even a charismatic. I'm, I'm actually a Reformed Baptist and a cessationist. So that goes to show you that I'm not just being partial here. I do believe that God can still uh, do miracles today and reveal himself to uh, Muslims and anyone whom he so chooses. So be praying about that. Be praying about the show on the 19th. Be praying for Jonathan. Uh, it's going to be a good show, and uh, hopefully we'll even be able to get some Muslim callers. And uh, if you guys have, know, uh, have known, if you listen to this show for any length of time, we frequently do debates on this show. And, in fact, again, if you go to our Facebook page, uh, you can find several of them, or you can Google it. Uh, we're also on iTunes. So we've done uh, Roman Catholic versus Protestant debate on Sola Scriptura. And uh, we've actually got something in the works coming up in October. Uh, for this this coming October, this will be the second year in a row now, we really I dedicate that to the Protestant Reformation. Um, I do that because I think a lot of Protestants uh, do not understand what it is to be a Protestant? What, is, what, what does it mean? What do we hold? What are we protesting? Kind of what, what is our doctrine? Why do we believe this stuff? Um, is, uh, is the reason that we're not Catholic and or I should say Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox simply because of taste or because of preference? You know, we rather have kind of the praise band instead of the uh, uh, the, the, the high church or liturgy, you know, if that's if that's kind of where we're at, then that's not very very good reason to not, uh, you know, to, or, or to be a Protestant, right? There's theology behind that, <laughs> holding to uh, sola scriptura, which we're going to get into in a minute, uh, sola fide, sola gratia, these things, faith alone, scripture alone. Uh, some of these things that are going to set us apart from our Roman Catholic and uh, Eastern Orthodox friends. So we we need to know kind of what is that? What is the differences? Why is it important? Uh, do the differences still matter today? Is, is the divide still there? So we're going to be we're going to be tackling that this uh, this uh, this October. And what I plan on doing. Uh, what I hope to do is have a uh, Catholic apologist on towards the end of the month uh, and uh, in October and do a friendly, informal uh, dialogue 
between him and a Protestant uh, apologist on the issue of Sola Scriptura. Many things we have in common uh, with our Catholic friends, you know, the, the deity of Christ, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, resurrection, you know, those, those things. Um, you know, Catholics, Roman Catholics have, have done a lot of good things for us theologically, philosophically. Uh, of course, they have been uh, amazing in the fight against abortion. And, uh, you know, so I don't want this, you know, I don't want people to think I'm like Jack Chick or something and just hate all Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, because I don't, uh, I don't at all. So be looking for that this October. We're going to do that. And uh, let's see, later on this month, really excited to announce that uh, Ken Samples is going to be coming on our show. And he's from Reasons to Believe. If you guys... uh, are familiar with that ministry? Hugh Ross and Fuzzerana and Ken Samples are kind of the, the the faces of reasons to believe, and uh, most of their work is with uh, dealing with with uh, the issue of creation versus evolution. And uh, I'll be honest with you guys, I am not I am not an old Earth creationist. Well, when I first got saved, this was one of the issues that I studied. Uh, man, for probably three or four years. And uh, so I am not a young earth creationist uh, or an old earth creationist at all. I would definitely fall into the young earth camp. uh, But one thing that I've noticed is a lack of charity, uh, a lack of love, a lack of, of willing to have open dialogue on that particular issue, on the age of the earth. And I see that from young earth creationists, and I see that from old earth creationists. And um, though, I, like I said, though I am a young earth creationist, I love, love, love the work of Ken Samples. I think this guy is, uh, I think he's a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And I think he has a lot to offer uh, the Christian church in way of uh, philosophy, theology, apologetics, uh, just a brilliant mind. And so, you know, I want to, 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 you know, have people kind of know that, hey, you know, you don't have to agree on every single area uh, to to be able to learn from people. You know, um, I'll be honest, you know, uh, being a young earth creationist, a lot of times you're just kind of characterized uh, based on what people see from Ken Ham. Cancers in Genesis, you know, the, the probably the leading proponent of young earth creationism. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, I think Ken Ham has done a lot of good. I think he's done a lot of good things. I've got thousands of dollars worth of material from Answers in Genesis. Um, I recommend the ministry, you know, um, but I don't necessarily recommend Ken Ham. And I know that sounds, well, kind of contradictory. Why would you recommend Answers in Genesis, but not necessarily recommend Ken Ham. And uh, while I like Ken Ham, uh, his zeal and and things like that, I think sometimes he is um, a little uncharitable in some of his remarks, for example. Uh, I like Answers in Genesis because I like the the science. I think the science is good. I think the, the people that work for Answers in Genesis, I think they're good... They're good scientists. I mean, these guys have degrees from accredited 
you know, universities. Um, so the work, you know, the stuff that I get from Answers in Genesis, it's, it's, it's mainly from the, from the scientists. Um, I, think, I think we just need to be gracious with our tone, and I don't see that coming from both sides, but I, I don't see that coming from Ken Ham. I don't see uh, a, a very gracious tone sometimes. And um, why I personally do not hold to, you know, the older position, uh, I'm not going to call someone like Norman Geisler or Paul Cocan or Ravi Zacharias a compromiser because they don't hold to the younger few. That's, I just find that ridiculous. None of those guys accept evolution as, as far as the macro sense or common, common descent. They, they believe that the Bible is the word of God. They're not, uh, they're not denying that Jesus rose from the dead or miracles or anything else. You know, they have a different uh, interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And uh, I get that. I don't, I don't agree with their interpretation at all. Uh, but I think to call them a compromiser is just ridiculous. I, I just do. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, because you have, again, some of the greatest defenders of the faith today and in times past held to an older few. And what you see, and if, if you guys listen to our show with Jay Weil, what you see is you have issues like this. You have the issues of the young earth versus old earth, uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, eschatology, end times. Okay? And what you have is hot debate on these issues, big-time debate on these doctrinal issues. And that's why I say I think we need to proceed with caution on these on these issues and not say, well, if that person doesn't believe a pre-trib, you know, pre-mill rapture, he's obviously an idiot. Or the covenant theologians, and I've seen those do it too, that uh, they just make a sport out of mocking dispensationalists. I just, I think that's ridiculous. I think that's that's not a very charitable, thoughtful, nor Christian approach. Uh, you have brilliant men on all sides of the issues. I'm not saying, therefore, there is no, you know, correct position. There is. But, uh, you know, let us approach it with a little bit of humility. When it comes to the young earth, old earth uh, thing, again, yeah, you know, I think we need to be a little gracious, uh, a little humble in that, and, uh, you know, be open. Be open to correction. Be open to have your views uh, challenged. That does not mean I would say the same thing. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, I don't put theistic evolution in that camp because I think there's a lot of problems scripturally with theistic evolution. I understand with the, with the oldest creationists, I understand uh, how they could come to that conclusion uh, because the word day can have different meanings. I, I understand with the modifiers and all that, uh, but I'm just saying that I could, I could see how one could come to that conclusion, though I may not agree with it. Uh, I think with theistic evolution, that's, that's a totally different ballgame. But uh, that being said, uh, I wanted to go... Let me let me go briefly over an event that we did last night, and then I wanted to touch on this uh, article on Sola Scriptura from Equip.org. So last night we held our, fir our first event of the semester, uh, even though the semester doesn't officially start for two weeks, but uh, 
we kind of started things uh, a little early. Uh, did our first event at um, was the local Southern Baptist Club, uh, kind of the it's called the BCM, and uh, it's where a lot of the Southern Baptist uh, youth and college students they'll meet there throughout the semesters during uh, college and do Bible studies and different talks and stuff like that. And last night we were able to have our first one of the uh, semester. We did a, uh, brought in my friend Jonathan McClatchy to do a talk on whether or not the New Testament is reliable or whether or not it is a myth. And, you know, we weren't sure exactly what kind of turnout we were going to get because we weren't able to really, you know, advertise like we wanted. Uh, but uh, we had to show up, and uh, it was a great event. Uh, Jonathan did a great, uh, a great job on that. And in fact, if, if you if you guys are interested, you can go to our page, Ratio Christie, at Winthrop University, and you can see uh, we're going to post some of the pictures and some of the videos up from from the show last night, and you can kind of follow our work that we're doing at uh, Winthrop University in Rock Hill with Ratio Christie. And uh, for those who are not uh, very familiar with Ratio Christi, it is a college uh, ministry that really seeks to equip um, students with theology, with apologetics. So many times, students on the college campus are challenged. What do they believe? Why do they believe it? And a lot of times, they really they don't know. Uh, a lot of times it's it's kind of what they've been taught, it's what they were brought up with, but they don't really have necessarily, I don't want to say good reasons, a lot of times it's just, it's it's their parents' faith is, is what it is. And so, uh, you know, they don't know some of these answers to some of the questions. How do you know God exists? How do you know that the Bible is, is true? These type of things. A lot, of, a lot of people, they just, they don't know. And so what Ratio Christie does, we are there to try and uh, kind of shore up some of the teachings that we are, you know, kind of the essentials of the Christian faith. So, for example, doctrine of the Trinity, right? That's a question that's going to come up a lot. Um, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Is it three gods and one God? Or, or you know, how does, that, how does that work? How come Jesus... If he is God and he dies on the cross, are we saying God died on the cross? If uh, if God knows all things and Jesus is God, then how come Jesus didn't know the, the time he was coming back? You know, some of these issues. Um, hasn't science disproven the existence of God? Hasn't science demonstrated that uh, there's no such thing as a metaphysical mind? Right, so Ratio Christie comes alongside the college students, and we do different events throughout the semester, but also uh, we hold weekly meetings, and we try and train them and equip them so when they're standing on the, on the college campus, they can engage with their classmates. Uh, they're able to uh, engage with the professors and not just take everything that's said, but actually critically think through some of these issues. So anyway, that was a, that was a very good event uh, that we did last night. And uh, if you want more on that, um, you can go to Theology Matters. We'll probably post some pictures there, too, on our Facebook page. You can check that out. 
And uh, just thanks, everyone, who came, and, and thanks for uh, praying for us. So real quickly, what I wanted to do, we've got about five minutes uh, before we're going to switch gears and bring on my friend, uh, Pastor Jacob. Interesting article. Um, probably foolish to even try and attempt this in five minutes, but we're going we're gonna to give it our best shot. Equip.org. Uh, this is the ministry of Hank Hanegraaff and uh, CRI, Christian Research Journal. It's a great ministry. I don't agree with everything Hank says, but I don't agree with everything most people say. And that's just the nature of how things are. We're not going to agree with everybody on everything. But for the most part, I think uh, I think Equip.org and I think uh, Hank Hanegraaff and them do a good job. That article that was in uh, it was either in one of the newsletters or it was in the journal called A Protestant Understanding of Sola Scriptura. And let me read you the definition. It says, Sola Scriptura. Protestants mean that Scripture alone is the primary and absolute source for all doctrine and practice or faith and morals. Uh, Sola Scriptura implies several things. And then it, it lists uh, four or five things. So what I've noticed as I have talked to Protestants, is many times there's a real misunderstanding of what sola scriptura is. And what I actually see is many people, uh, what they really are trying to define as sola scriptura is solo scriptura, which is a terrible view and is very easily open to criticism from Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. So let's look at this. Point one, it says, uh, first, the Bible is a direct revelation from God. As such, it has divine authority for what the Bible says God says. So the thing is, things that we know. So there's, there's certain things we can know, for example, through apologetics. I would argue through philosophical arguments. As a classical apologist, I think we can give arguments that show God exists, a monotheistic God. In fact, if you get Doug Rotice's book, Christian Apologetics, uh, he's got several great chapters. Uh, but what you see is God exists, monotheism. But philosophical arguments can never get us to the doctrine of the Trinity, right? It can get us to theism, and it can even get us to monotheism. But it's not going to be able to demonstrate the doctrine of the Trinity. We have to have special revelation. Right? God has to tell us these things. History can tell us Jesus died on the cross, but history can't tell us that Jesus' blood atones for our sins. This is something that, that uh, we have to have revealed to us through Scripture. So, yeah, Scripture, it, it implies that this is a direct revelation from God. The, our theology that we get, uh, much of it is derived from special revelation. That doesn't mean, again, that we can't get to things like the existence of God, uh, morality, um, laws of logic. Certain you know, transcendental arguments can still be used, uh, but for exactly who the Bible or who this God is and what has the work of Christ done on the cross, things on the afterlife, that's, that's special revelation. So let's go to the second point, the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is that the Bible is sufficient. It is all that is necessary for faith and practice. For Protestants, uh, the Bible alone means the Bible only is the final authority of our faith. So that's important, that, the, that it's saying that the Bible alone is the only infallible authority of our faith. 
uh, tragically, I run into Christians all the time who think uh, we should get rid of the creeds. We should get rid of the confessions. We don't need them because we have the Bible. And, folks, that is not what Sola Scriptura is saying. We're not saying it can't benefit from creeds, benefit from councils, you know, benefit from these confessions. Again, I'm a Reformed Baptist. Hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Uh, I love the Canons of Dort, Heidelberg, Catechism, uh, much of the Westminster Confession and, and such. So I'm not against that stuff. I think that stuff is actually very, very helpful and it's needed. So when we say things like, well, the Bible is all we need and we don't need um, the other, you know, creeds and set, et cetera, it's just not very precise. Need for what? Need for salvation? Right. The Bible alone gives us everything we need for salvation. But that doesn't mean that these other things are not beneficial and useful. You know, the creeds, really, they're like a, a fence that keeps heretical teaching out. And so the, I would argue that the creeds and the confessions are very good, and we need them today. Third point, the scriptures not only have sufficiency, but they also possess final authority. Final authority. They are the final court of appeal on all doctrines, on all doctrinal and moral matters. However, good they may be in giving guidance, all the fathers, popes, and councils are fallible. Only the Bible is infallible. So again, it's not saying that uh, we can't derive uh, things from the church fathers, um, that we can't, uh, you know, get things from the creeds, the confessions, the councils. It's not saying any of that. What it's saying is, that they, that the Bible only, is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. And that's the big difference, folks. Uh, if we don't make that distinction, then, you know, we, we set ourselves up for, for criticism. And we need to be careful about that. And so, with that said, I actually had a, had a clip I was going to uh, play for a moment. And then when we come back, we will have our guest on uh, Pastor Jacob Ali, we're going to switch gears. Look into the life in the writings of C.S. Lewis. Where are the witnesses? Where are the spurgeons? Read the word. Read the word. We need sound theology. It must not be forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable where living faith in definite truth dwells side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured, controversy will result. 
Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, he said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrines of grace. God will use it to the bestowing of blessing upon His church and upon His people, and it sets in right motion everything that is right in the church. The doctrines of grace purify our worship. It purifies our fellowship. It purifies our own spiritual lives. It sets in motion our ministries. It purifies our evangelism. It inflames our missions. This was part of the epicenter of the shock of the Reformation that was unleashed upon Europe and sent its earthquake effects across the Atlantic to reverberate here in the colonies of America. This is the preaching of the Reformation. All right, folks. Thanks for uh, being back with us and joining us again. We have our uh, guest on the line with us, Mr. Uh, Jacob Ali. And uh, let me read a little bit of uh, his bio. Uh, Pastor Jacob is the Pastor of Discipleship for Apologetics at Community Christian Church in Apache Junction, Arizona. He's earned a BA in Religion and Apologetics from Luther Rice University, an MA in Biblical Studies from Piedmont International University, and is now working on a PhD in Humanities at Faulkner University uh, in the Great Book Honors College. Uh, Jacob's dissertation Research is focused on the life and works of C.S. Lewis. Pastor Jacob is happily married with three kids and is a passionate follower uh, of the Lord Jesus. And you can learn more about his ministry by going to uh, www.jacoballey.com. So with that being said, Jacob, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing? Doing good. It's great to great to hear your voice again. <laughs> Well, good to be back on your show again. Yeah, that's right. You were on uh, about a year or two ago, right? Yeah, back when we were trying to convince Christians to vote for Romney. I guess it didn't work out so hot, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, we're going to blame you for that one. That, <laughs> yeah, it was same. definitely my fault. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, did I leave anything out of the bio there? Is there any, anything you wanted to add? 
No, no, not at all. That's that's plenty, plenty good. Anything you want to know, I'd be glad to tell you, though. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I, I was kind of struck me as I was reading your bio, uh, passed from discipleship and apologetics. Uh, so is that kind of a um, just a position that was created so you're kind of the pastor of apologetics? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, when when I was invited to come interview for the position, uh, this, the pastor for preaching here, his name is Joel Ellis, and he, uh, you know, kind of said we want to let you work where you're gifted, and um, you know, he kind of asked me where. I mean, he knew my background in apologetics, you know, but and he wanted that to be a part of it for sure, and so he just kind of said, well, let's let's throw out a couple different titles, and I said that one sounds good to me, and, and so we've been kind of just creating my my. Uh, job around that title and trying to uh, disciple our members and get them to grow deeper in their faith and understanding of the Word of God first, and then also to equip them to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it, and to be ready to give an answer for the hope we have in Christ, and so that's um, that's what we're working on here at, at Community Christian Church. So. Wow, that's great. I mean, I remember, I think it was an article by Jay Wallace I was reading, and he had made that point, you know, you have these churches that have the pastor of music and pastor of this and, past, you know, 50 different pastors. And he was right. saying, you know, why don't we have a pastor of apologetics? You know, that would be such a a great tool to have for the pastor himself, you know, to be able to uh, to point people to. So that's, that's, that's really, really cool that you guys are doing that. Yeah, I, I ran into uh, Craig Hazen uh, a couple of months back when he was here for a conference in the Phoenix area, and and I introduced myself to him and you know, gave him my card. And he said, "Pastor of apologetics, you know, that's kind of the white whale that everybody's after, you know." And so <laughs> he he was pretty excited to to go back to his students and tell them that it really does exist. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, tell us about yourself. How did you uh, How did you become a, a Christian? Well, uh, I grew up in a, in a home with believing parents, and so, you know, as, as far back as I can remember, I, I remember, you know, knowing the, the basic elements of the gospel story and, of course, the major Bible stories, and and I don't really have a, a time where I can think back to where I didn't think those things were true, um, but there's a difference between affirming something is true and actually placing your trust in it and, and repenting of your sin, and and that part didn't come until I was about 15 years old. Um, when I was just 13 and 14 years old, uh, I got kind of mixed up in drug and alcohol abuse and, and a lot of other vices that you can imagine and uh, really train wrecked my life for, for two years of my, my young teenage life and um, kind of came to the end of my rope and was really struggling with depression and even thoughts of suicide. And, and I was uh, alone one day in my home and and uh, God just kind of, you know, reminded me of the gospel that I had been taught, you know, and, and I cried out to God and asked him to, to forgive me and to save me and promised him my whole life if he'd just help me turn things around, you know, and it was no eloquent sinner's prayer, but it, what it was looking back, not knowing the, the term then, but knowing it now was repentance and, and realizing that I really needed to give my whole life over to Christ, and so... Um, and yeah, God was just faithful uh, in in hearing my prayer for help, and uh, and He really just changed changed me from the inside out. And um, within within just a few weeks, I had new friends and and people that loved and cared about me. Didn't expect me to do some of the things I was doing to fit in with them. And I eventually got invited to a Bible study, and 
Uh, I went to a, a youth pastor's uh, house for Bible study, and there I just fell in love with God's Word and the church, and kind of the rest is history. So, <laughs> wow, that's awesome! Great, great story. How uh, God, how did God's you get faithful. into? Yes, he is. How did you get into apologetics? Yeah, that's that's the that's the second half of that story, I guess you might say. You know, that was 15 when I came to know Christ. Um, and by, by the time I was 16 years old, I really knew that I wanted to be in ministry. Um, I went on a mission trip to Mexico. We were down there for 10 days um, doing building a house and, and doing evangelism and different things. And I told my youth pastor I wanted to, to be in youth ministry just like him. And so that was kind of my pursuit um, from that time on. And fast forward a little bit to uh, the time I was, oh, about 22 years old, I, I was uh, on staff at a, at a church um, in southwest Kansas, and uh, I had been doing youth ministry, and I, I had been blogging about my studies in the Bible, and, and lo and behold, this uh, this atheist gets on my blog, and he just tears me to shreds, and he starts throwing objections and things my way that I've never heard before, I don't know how to answer, and it really freaked me out. Um, because I'm not one of those people that can simply bury my head in the sand and just say, well, I'm just going to believe no matter what, you know. And and so I, I remember going home to my wife, and uh, and I said to her, Susan, I, I said, what if nothing we believe is true? <laughs> you can imagine that panicked her a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I began to to search and, and say, uh, how do I, how do I know you know God really exists? How do I know the Bible is, is true and reliable? How do I know that Jesus is who He said He was? And and the first book that I found um, that kind of set me on a path towards hope that I could keep my brain and my faith uh, was Know Why You Believe by Paul Little. Um, and that book didn't answer all the questions that I now had, but it, it kind of gave me a okay maybe maybe there's something to this, you know. And at the time, I was taking classes from Moody Bible Institute uh, in, in the Biblical Studies program there. Um, but I, I found shortly after that time, I found that Luther Rice University had started a new program on, on the undergraduate level in Christian apologetics. And so I, I transferred over into that. And um, working through that program really found a lot of the answers that I needed and it kind of came back to a more solid, solid ground with my faith and so it's been my passion since then to be able to equip other people with the answers to questions and objections and to give people a, a positive case for Christianity, not just a reactionary one, but to show that Christianity really is true and that it makes sense and it makes more sense than all the other options of worldviews and philosophies available today. Oh, man, that's good. Very well said. Do you have uh, any particular areas of theology or philosophy, not philosophy, apologetics? <laughs> that you uh, kind of specialize in more than, than another? Or? Um, you know, probably arguments for God's existence and, and reliability of the Bible and the evidence for the resurrection are kind of the three that I've spent more time on than a lot of other things. Um, but I, I, I try, intentionally, I try to be something of a generalist, you know. Um, I, I appreciate that within the realm of apologetics that we have kind of the these top-tier specialist guys, you know, who who are super focused in one area and, and uh, you know, I like, like Mike Lacona who, who's awesome in the resurrection and you've got J.P. Moreland and his uh, philosophy and, and just different areas where these guys are super specialists and, and, they're, and they're fantastic at what they do, um, but they may not be able to speak as uh, powerfully to a, a different area or a different discipline and, and that's perfectly okay. 
uh, I consider kind of myself on the on the tier below those guys. I'll never be I'll never be who they are, but at the same time, I can take what these first rank guys are doing, and I can kind of popularize that information, and I can kind of learn it to be able to speak to a wide variety of issues. And so, I intentionally want to be diverse in my study in apologetics so that I can kind of be prepared to give an answer for for anything that might come my way. And um, I'm very intentional about wanting to be doing evangelism and, and out in the out in the real world and, and finding those questions that could be all over the spectrum. So. Yeah, that's that's good. That's important because you can't you know you can't know everything. You can't be a specialist in every area, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can do do general and, and kind of take that information and pass it out as best you can. Uh, C.S. Yep. Lewis, I know you're you're very interested. Talk to us about how to, how you kind of got into into C.S. Lewis and what what some of the stuff you're doing now with with his work. Sure. Well, you know, like probably like a lot of people, uh, my earliest interaction with C.S. Lewis would have been the Chronicles of Narnia and then also the book Mere Christianity, you know, and uh, until not not terribly long ago, a couple of years ago, I didn't really know what else Lewis had even written, you know, those were just kind of what I knew of Lewis, but, um, you know, I started uh, finding that he had a lot more to say, and, and I've kind of grown in my appreciation of Lewis, and as I've started in my program uh, at Faulkner University in the Great Books Honor College and had to start thinking about, okay, what do I want to do for a dissertation? And, and I really wanted to focus it on, on something that would make me a better apologist. That's, you know, that's my calling in life. And so I thought, well, who's better than C.S. Lewis to just dive into and, and, and figure out everything I can about his ministry? And he is such a, a powerful communicator and such an effective uh, thinker and defender of the Christian faith, you know, and so... I said, well, I'm going to devote myself to studying his life and works, and uh, I think by doing that, by sitting at his feet, you know, making him my uh, my master, so to speak, in that way, you know, he uh, he will help me to be a better apologist. And so that's what I'm doing right now at, at Faulkner, and um, I've spent the last six months especially looking mainly at his biographical, uh, you know, information and, and learning all about his, his actual life and you know, I've been starting to dig more into some of his uh, nonfiction works as well. And so, but I've got a got a long study ahead of me, and still got more books to get to before I can say I've uh, really got this guy all figured out. And I think that'll be a while, but I'm really enjoying it. So. Do you have uh, Do you have one or two of your of his the favorite books that he's done? Uh, well, it's it's hard to pick, but um, I really really like The Great Divorce a lot, and uh, I recently, uh, for the first time, read A Grief Observed, and I actually found that profound and powerful as well. Um, and then, of course, The Chronicles of Narnia is just masterful work. So, <laughs> Right, a lot of them. I was, I was saying earlier, the guy that C.S. Lewis has probably quoted more than any, any person on the planet, from uh, believers, unbelievers, pastors, uh, apologists. I mean, everybody, kids love him. I mean... Everybody, everybody loves the the work of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, everybody wants a piece of C.S. Lewis, and it, it is interesting because you know, I mean, we're talking a wide spectrum of people and, and different worldviews that like C.S. Lewis. I mean, I I'm uh, on several um, forums for discussing C.S. Lewis, and and there are people who are, you know, in my opinion, way left of center. I mean, not not conservatives, not really even Christians, who are still very interested in C.S. Lewis's work and what he had to say. Um, and I think that Lewis had a way of communicating um, 
his worldview and his ideas that, that really spoke powerfully to people, even people who could look Lewis in the eye essentially and say, man, I completely disagree with it, but wow, the way he said it, you know? <laughs> and, and that's one of the yeah. things that made Lewis so unique. So. Well, good deal. Let's see. You, you've uh, you got kind of an outline here for us to follow. And uh, let's see, we still got uh, still got quite a bit of time left, so don't feel uh, like you have to rush through it. We got plenty of time. And sure. uh, take us, go ahead and take us through 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 some of this stuff. I'll kind of turn it turn it over to you. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. As I've uh, as I've been thinking about what I want to do specifically with C.S. Lewis in in relationship to my dissertation research, you know, obviously you're supposed to try and be original, which I always think that's kind of funny, you know, given what Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, and yet we're supposed to write an original dissertation. But anyway, you know, we've we got to try anyway. And so I think, well, what kind, of, what kind of different angle can I bring as I study the life and works of C.S. Lewis? And, um, you know, I took a class this last semester in, in, my, um, in my Ph.D. program called Christian Humanism. Um, and that, that term automatically for a lot of people throws up all kinds of flags. They're saying, what do, you, what do you mean by Christian humanism? Because the only humanism that people are used to hearing about is what we would call secular humanism. Uh, and that's the idea that you know, man is the center of the universe, essentially, that man is the greatest thing there is and, and everything is defined by, by us. And so um, there is nothing right. greater. And, and secular humanism, of course, just outright denies the existence of God and, and things along those lines. And so when we hear uh, Christian humanism, people automatically think, well, that's like saying square circle, you know, or married bachelor. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so, um, right. but what Christian humanism is, is saying is to say essentially that um, to to look at mankind and see them for what they really are and to celebrate what it means to be man. Uh, but to do that properly, you actually really have to put them, in, put them in light of Scripture and put them in light of the Christian worldview. To see man as they really are, you have to understand that mankind is a creation of God, that we are image bearers of God. Um, and so, like, there's basically the way I see it, there's about three different facets of of Christian humanism and that when you see these different pieces come together, you get a full picture of, of what Christian humanism is all about. And, and one of the things is to recognize, you know, man is as God's creature and in his image, but to realize that the, the, the world is broken, that there's been a fall, you know, that there's uh, fundamentally been, been something that has happened, which we would call sin, which has broken the physical world and even the nature of man to some degree. And yet, even still, we would say that there are things in this world worth enjoying and still worth taking pleasure in and, and saying that, you know, when God had made the world and everything in it and said, it is good, even though the fall has seriously scarred those things, it hasn't completely destroyed all the goodness of what God has made. And so Christian humanism recognizes that uh, the world is broken, but that there are still some good things in the world worth enjoying. But then the third facet of that is to say that the world is really not enough. Um, that even though we can we can say there are good things worth enjoying in this world, and whether it be you know the pleasure of friendship or the pleasure of eating and drinking, the, or whatever it may be, you know those things aren't satisfying enough. And really, 
we want something more. The world is not enough. We want to get back to that Edenic state and, re- and that, that time where we are really reconnected with God the way we were supposed to be. And so essentially, I mean, Christian humanism is, is just another way, I think, of saying the Christian worldview, essentially. But it is a way of looking at mankind and saying, if you want to know what it means to truly be human, you have to adopt the Christian worldview to see what man really is and to celebrate and think of man properly. Does that make sense? Yeah, yep. Oh, yes, so, uh, yeah. that's very good. So How what I'm... You, uh, uh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, kinda, with, the, with the Christian worldview, just kind of briefly sketch out uh, maybe the, some of the opposing uh, different worldviews of of man and how, they, how that may differ with the Christian worldview. So maybe like the naturalistic or... Sure, yeah. Well, obviously the the... I guess the the fundamental enemy, you might say, of, of the Christian worldview today seems to be naturalism for the most part. There's some there's some other things we can think of like pantheistic worldviews, but in Western thought, that's not really real common. Um, so what we deal right. with here in, in the Western world is typically the idea of naturalism, which assumes that there is no God, assumes that there is no um, immaterial reality. All that really is existing, they would say, is the material, physical world. Um, and, and that process then, of course, doesn't allow for mankind to be seen as a creation, but to be seen as a, as a uh, product of chance and evolution. And so, um, you know, that's, and that's where secular humanism really is, is rooted, is this idea that, uh, you know, man, the only reason that man is the greatest thing there is is because it's the most highly evolved animal there is, you know. And, and, and so right. that's, kind of the, that's kind of the opposing worldview there. Um, and so when you, you talk about secular humanism versus Christian humanism, um, you know, the, the fundamental line between those two things is, is the recognition of the creator, cre- the created and the creature distinction versus the there's just nature. Um, and so those are, those, are what's, um, those are what's on the table and those are what's, what we're arguing for, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so kind of with the, with the naturalist view, man is special because they uh, – kind of won the survival of the fittest and uh, with the Christian worldview, man, it's special because he's made in the image of God, right? That's, yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, that's the thing that makes us distinct from all of the other animals and life forms in this world is that God specifically said, let's make man in our image and and uh, that's that's how he made man and woman. And so he separated us from the beasts of the field and, uh, and you know, theologians, of course, argue to some degree, what does it mean to be in the image of God? And we know that God is a spirit, and He doesn't have a body like man. He's, he's you know, He's uh, so whatever it means to communicate that man is in the image of God, uh, it, it's not necessarily a, a physical reflection of that image, but it is, um, you know, I think that thing which separates us from the beast is that uh, having a will, having intelligence, having uh, to a lesser extent, you know, creative creative power. You know, I mean, different things like that we are. Uh, that are communicable between us and God. Now, we are different from all of the other things that he has made. We are the most like him of his creatures. Let's, if you don't mind, maybe we could um, look at with the, the three puzzle pieces here. When we say that the, the world is broken, and I'm in a, in a Christian worldview, what do we mean by that? Yeah, well, you know, um, when we communicate the gospel, um, that is that, 
that we need Christ and the saving work of what Christ has done, we need to understand and we need to communicate to people that um, there is a problem <laughs> with mankind and there's a problem in this world, and we would call that problem sin. And essentially the issue is that when God, when God first made the world, he made it good. He made it perfect and without defect or flaw. Uh, but the scripture tells us, uh, you know, in Genesis chapter 3 and, and throughout the entire scripture, it repeats this idea that mankind has rebelled against God. Our, our parents, Adam and Eve, did it in the garden, and we have all followed suit with them and, and done it as well. Um, and so because of sin entering into the world, it has affected creation itself. The very fabric of the universe, I think, has been affected by sin, the curse of sin in the world. And then also human nature has been affected. We would call this uh, total depravity, that every part of who we are has been affected by sin. And sometimes people confuse what we mean by total depravity. We don't mean that uh, you're as, every person is as possibly bad as they could be. You know, I always joke that, like, Hitler probably had a chance to kick a puppy in front of a truck one time and didn't do it. You know, I mean, nobody is as bad as they possibly could be. Um, but your, your, the way you think, um, your physical existence, just everything has been touched by sin. No part of you has been left untouched. And so the world is broken. Both the, the physical, natural world itself and the people in it are broken and, and need redemption. That's good. That is, that is very good. Sometimes uh, I think that is really missed. I think our theology can be really really off base if we don't have that proper understanding of who God is, but also of our own anthropology, um, the, the fall, how, how that has affected us, how we view things. Um, if you don't have a right view of God and a right view of man, you end up in some pretty bad theology. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And so part of what I'm doing in my dissertation research is um, is showing how this concept, this first piece of the puzzle of Christian humanism, uh, that the world is broken, how that affected Lewis's own life biographically, and then I will also turn and look and see how that same concept uh, kind of flows into the works that he wrote, both fiction and nonfiction. And like you know, for instance, I mean, Lewis, uh, when he was just nine years old, his mother died of cancer, and so is very early in Lewis's life that he realizes he gets a sense of the brokenness of this world, that something's not right with this world. And so, and I kind of try to trace that, that theme of the other thing, I mean, his, his uh, experience in World War I um, and seeing most of his buddies die in World War I and, and he himself, you know, being injured, which actually probably saved his life in the long run. Uh, taking him out of the war, but but nonetheless, you know, just seeing the the pain and the suffering and the brokenness of different things in the world, and that had a profound uh, effect on Lewis. And so that's a real important part of who he he was as a person, and also the the way he wrote about things. Yeah, that's probably why why he resonates with so many people, uh, is because people 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 I think know that that the world is not the way it ought to be. So I think they yeah, can... I agree. I think there's there's a a general recognition of that truth, and and you know, of course the question is why? Why is it that people seem to realize that something is off? You know, and like when we talk about the moral argument for God's existence, you know, I like to use the example of of bowling. You know, because if you, if you go bowling, how well do you know, or how do you know how well you've done while bowling? Well, you have this number 300. That's the perfect standard, and as close as you get to that. 
closer you get to that, the better you know you've done. Well, uh, and, and anything less than 300 is in some sense deficient. Well, and we all kind of sense that there are moral deficiencies in this world, and yet how do we have that sense of moral deficiency unless there's an objective standard to measure it to? And we know that that's God. Right. Yeah, that's it. You don't know that the world is broken unless you have an idea of the way it should be. I think it was Lewis that said you wouldn't know a wouldn't know a, uh, a crooked line unless you first knew a straight line. I think he was he was talking that's about the, the argument for morality. Right. That's right. Talk, talk maybe just for a moment on this as we're on this point about the world being broken uh, about his about his wife about the loss of his wife and maybe the problem of pain the book that he wrote and then the book after. Uh, the, the grief observed. Right. Yeah. You know, a problem. Uh, the problem with pain is kind of more of an academic treatment of uh, suffering and the problem of evil and things like that. Whereas the grief observed is much more personal uh, because it is his own uh, struggles and feelings and emotions as he's is going through the, the grief of having lost his wife, uh, Joy. And actually, when when uh, A Grief Observed was first published, it was published under the name N.W. Clerk, and in fact it remained under that name until after C.S. Lewis died uh, because it was so personal and he just uh, didn't, didn't want to publish it under his own name, and yet he felt that his own uh, reflection over these, these sufferings of this grief might help other people, so he still wanted it to be published. Wow. Um, so probably... Yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> go ahead. What were you going to Yeah, I was going to say, I was, I, we actually uh, took a uh, Problem of Evil course at the seminary I go to, and we, that was one of the required readings was, uh, was the problem of pain. Talk to us mm. a little bit. How did Lewis, how did, he, how did he answer some of these issues with the problem of evil? How, what was his, some of his uh, responses to that? Uh. Well, you know, the, in a grief observed, I mean, he, let me put it this way. When when he encounters it firsthand, it, it really takes on new meaning and new life to him uh, when he suffered personally. Um, and yet, you know, what you see in a grief observed, actually, I think it, it, it kind of, I've talked to a number of Christians who have read through that book, and it, it kind of bothers them because they say, well, that just, that just didn't seem like Lewis, you know? <laughs> because, I mean, he expresses some pretty some pretty plain and straightforward thoughts and doubts, you know, about about God's goodness. He says, you know, how how could a good God let this kind of thing happen? And, and I mean, if you stick with it, what you really see is uh, Lewis worked through the trenches of, of his pain and his suffering and and he gets on to the other side, and, and he basically concludes that if God was good before, you know, my wife died, then then God is still good, and, and my my personal experience doesn't change that. It's not like suffering is something new, you know. And and so he has to work through the emotions and the and the personal pain that he feels to come full circle back to affirming the goodness of God. Um, and it's a it's a pretty powerful thing, and and I I like a grief observed because it deals with. Um, you might call the the emotional problem of evil, you know, because uh, we can deal with the logical problem of evil, you know, very well, I think, and I think we can demonstrate that the problem of evil is actually a problem for atheism more than it is a problem for Christianity. Um, but but the experiential problem of evil, the experiential problem of pain, you know, that that's something much more personal, and when you're in the throes of it yourself, it's something that, that you really have to work through and struggle through, and, and Lewis did that. 
Yeah, that's right. He absolutely did. Yeah, I've not uh, I've not read the uh, the other book he's done. The uh, grief observed. I have read the read, read the problem of pain though. So I probably need to need to get that uh, book he did. I'd love to get some of his insights to that. Well, I found the grief observed to be uh, very profound, and and actually one of I mean most of Lewis's works are very quotable, but this one this one is full of things that just really stood out to me, and so. Um, this is very powerful work. I can't recommend it enough to other people. It is. I will say this, you know, and I'm, a, you know, obviously I'm a huge Lewis fan. I think that A Grief Observed did, in some ways, reflect what I would say are some deficiencies in Lewis's theology, which is part of why he struggled so hard. Um, I, I think he, uh, had he had a better view or understanding of the atonement, I think that he might not have suffered as much with uh, some of the things that he did, because one of the things he was um, really concerned with was the question of whether his wife was still suffering in some way, shape, or form. And, and uh, the the question that a lot of people raise with Lewis is that Lewis believes in purgatory. Um, and the fact is, is there are some things that hint that he he may sort of believe that, but there's other things that seem to suggest otherwise. And, and in this book, you basically have Lewis saying, I don't know, but about half of the Christians in the world seem to think that there is, you know. <laughs> And, and so um, it, it just struck me so hard while reading this book that had he had better better understanding of Jesus's it is finished, the sufficiency of the atonement, that really would have brought more comfort, I think, to Lewis. And, and so that's that's one thing that I find unique about um, A Grief Observed, even though it's a great book on a lot of fronts. I think it shows a few of uh, Lewis's theological deficiencies, personally. Yeah, I was recently in a discussion with uh, someone on Facebook, kind of a well-known ministry, and put this quote out that Christians should not be quoting C.S. Lewis. In fact, they wanted to start a campaign, stop quoting C.S. Lewis, because uh, he wasn't uh, evangelical. And uh, there were a few things that were brought up. What were some of the issues that we would take issue as evangelicals with him today? And uh, what, what, do you, what would you say to people that say, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't read C.S. Lewis? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the some of the things that uh, evangelicals might find concerning about Lewis is, is what one what I just talked about that he he at least seems to be a little more open to the idea uh, that there might be some sort of intermediate state of, of purgatory. You know, again, he, he never really affirms that clearly, and and he seems to me uh, to just kind of be on the fence about that, honestly. He's just not really sure, I think. Um, and that comes out again in the Grief Observed. The other place that, that people point to, to to kind of see that idea is uh, the Great Divorce, you know. And the Great Divorce is a story uh, of people who, who take a bus from hell to heaven, and uh, they're offered the opportunity to stay there. And yet most of them decide to get back on the bus and go back to hell. And so it's, it's, a, great, it's a great story. Um, but Lewis says in the introduction to his own book that this shouldn't be taken to, to be what he really thinks the afterlife is like. It, it's a moral tale. It's telling a, uh, you know, a story here, and, and we shouldn't take it too seriously, essentially. And so, you know, there's hints at, there's hints at this idea of an intermediate state of a possible purgatory-like situation, you know, and yet he never really clearly affirms that or, or comes out and says, but I don't really believe that. And so that's something that makes some people uncomfortable for sure. Um, and, and I mean, I would certainly say, as, as uh, from my understanding of Scripture, that that's not 
<laughs> that that's not a thing that we should really take seriously as the idea of purgatory. But nonetheless, that's one issue. Uh, another issue, some some have accused Lewis of being a universalist. Um, that is patently false, um, and and I'll, I'll clarify why. Um, the idea of universalism is that in the end, all people will be saved. Okay, um, and and a lot of times people say, you know, just all paths, you know, lead to God, and yet very clearly Lewis seems to believe in a reality called hell, and he seems to believe that there will be people who do not end up in eternity with God. Um, you, you see that again in the Great Divorce. You see that in uh, the Last Battle with the Chronicles of Narnia, and you see that various other places where he writes that, that Lewis definitely doesn't believe everybody will in the end be with God in heaven. Where this idea that Lewis is a universalist comes from, I think, is maybe a few uh, statements here and there, but the one people seem to reference the most is also from the last battle, and you've got a um, a, a person who uh, was not a Narnian, you know, and he served this god, Tash, and uh, and he ends up basically getting to come and, and be with Aslan and Aslan's country, which is essentially like heaven. And, and Aslan has told him that your service to Tash will be a service to me. And the idea being is this, this guy was seeking the true god, whoever he was, and he didn't know Aslan. He was seeking Tash, thinking it was Tash, you know, but, but essentially he was truly seeking it, and Aslan counts that a service to him. Now, now, that does seem to communicate what you might call a soft inclusivism, you know. And the difference between, you know, universalism is the idea everybody will end up in heaven. Inclusivism is the idea, uh, like a hard inclusivism is the idea that everybody who expresses religious faith or responds to whatever light that they have will be saved by Christ's atoning work because they've responded to whatever revelation they had, Right. Well, and I would right. say Lewis here is even expressing a, just a kind of a soft inclusivism because he's not saying everybody that served Tash will will get to be in Aslan's country, but this one who was really seeking the true God and, and just didn't have the full picture, you know, he, he got in, okay? And so, again, I would say that seems to come across as a, as a deficient theology to me, but, again, it's, it's a far stone's throw from universalism and it's not even true yeah. inclusivism. It's kind of a, a soft inclusivism. And then the last right. thing that I guess I would say that, that you know, evangelicals will, will probably take issue with Lewis is that he was definitely not an inerrantist. And he may have even, and I think it's likely that to some degree he had evolutionary theory as, as part of his his world, as the way he thought about creation. Um, and so those are things, obviously, that, that make um, conservative evangelical Christians uncomfortable. Yeah, there was, uh, I'm sure you're probably aware of that article that came out um, fairly recently. I'm not sure if it was by, not sure really who it was by, uh, but they were kind of saying that uh, Lewis would not be an evangelical today or something like that, and he listed off a few different points. Uh, you, you familiar with that one? Uh, I, I'm not sure. There, Michael Ward, maybe, is who might be talking about. He came out with an article, uh, kind of arguing that Lewis actually would have become would have become a Roman Catholic, which, which I have my doubts about personally. I think, I think Lewis was comfortable with where he was, which was somewhere between the two, to be perfectly honest. And, um, and you know, as far as responding to people who said, well, Lewis wasn't the 
evangelical, and, and then, you know, some people will say, well, that means he's not a Christian, and therefore Lewis shouldn't be read, you know. Um, the, the thing I see about Lewis is there are points in his theology and in his writings where I say, wow, I totally disagree with that, or, or that, that really rubs me the wrong way. But what I see in Lewis is ultimately that he loves Christ, like that he came to truly love and trust fully in the Lord Jesus. And what I'm thankful about personally, and I think we should all be thankful about, is that uh, God doesn't require that we have perfect theology to be saved. God only requires yeah. that we trust not in ourselves but in the Lord Jesus. And I and I, for everything I've read, and, and I've tried to take a real, the best I can. I've tried to be objective about this because you know, I don't want my, I don't want my C.S. Lewis to be in hell or anything. You know, I mean. I, but at the same time, I wanted to sift through his work the best I can and say, okay, you know, has he expressed it? Is he expressed a false gospel? You know, and and I don't think he has. I think when it comes down to at the end of the day. Lewis's message was we all need to trust in the Jesus Christ of the Bible and him alone for our salvation. And I think he had some goofy ideas sometimes to the side of that, but that's that's central enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, with that exchange, someone had made a comment um, that why, why do we accept Rob Bell, uh, or why do we accept C.S. Lewis but uh, throw Rob Bell out? And uh, on right. the Parchment 10 uh, website, they had written a really good article addressing that. And they were saying how, yeah, there were some deficiencies with Lewis, uh, but that wasn't the core of his writings. You know, he loved Christ. He loved the essentials of the faith. He defended those. Yeah. You really have to look hard and long to find some of his, uh, you know, weaker points. As to where with Rob Bell, I mean, it's like it's hard to find him defending historic you know, Christianity. So. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, one of the things that stands out to me, I mean, Lewis didn't didn't seem to believe in what we would say traditional inerrancy by any means. And yet, even even with that, it doesn't seem to ever occur to Lewis that Christians should not listen to and obey the Scripture. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, so it, right. you know, the fact that he had this, this idea that I disagree with, it still didn't it still doesn't come across that Lewis is like, well, the the scripture is not inerrant, and therefore you don't necessarily have to listen to this part or that part. I mean, it never seems to have occurred to him that this isn't so authoritative in his life, you know. And so it's it's things like that where, you know, the Rob Bells of the world, like, they seem to be pushing the limits to escape from the authority of scripture, to escape from traditional Christianity. Lewis, on the other hand, was escaping from atheism and embracing Christian faith, and I think what you actually see is him coming further and closer and closer, you know, further up and further in, so to speak, closer to Christ and closer to his word as time goes on in this Christian walk. And so, you know, his his trajectory was, I think, 180 from Rob Bell and people like him. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't attack the Bible and the church and stuff like that, so... No, no, absolutely. Now let's, let's look at the, uh, the second point there. You have um, the world has things worth enjoying. So yeah. what do you mean by that? What did Lewis <laughs> just mean with that? Well, you know, um, Lewis, is one, Lewis is one to really enjoy things in this world. And, 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 and as soon as you say things like that, you have some Christian skin crawl. Well, you can't enjoy worldly things. Well, let's, let's be clear what we mean by that. It, it, we want to affirm that... Again, when God made the world, he made it perfect and good. Now, there has been a fall, 
there is brokenness in the world, in the physical world, and in our in our spiritual existence, and in in all of that. But it hasn't completely destroyed the goodness of God's creation, you know. And so, uh, you know, this, the scripture tells us whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You know, we can we can enjoy the things of this world in 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 the right attitude, in the right way, and say, praise God for good food. Praise God for, you know, even even sex. I mean, the idea that we've demonized sex as something evil and wrong, and yet God made sex, and he made it for our joy and for our pleasure, but he made it to be expressed in a certain context, which we call marriage, you know. And so we want to be able to celebrate those good things in the world. And, and Lewis was a guy who was really good at doing that. Now, admittedly, I think Lewis sometimes, you know, he, he may have gone a little far in that, in that way, and certainly before he was a Christian, before he was a Christian he did, you know, but he made the comment one time that um, he didn't come to Christianity to make him happy. He always knew that a bottle of port would do that, but he came to Christianity because it was true, you know. And, um, and so all through Lewis's life, you see him taking great pleasure and joy in things like close friendships, uh, in, in fine literature and books, in food, in a glass of wine, in tea. You know, I mean, he just relishes the good things in this world. And then especially when he becomes a Christian, he gives thanks to God for those things. And so it's, it's uh, really neat, I think, to see how that plays into Lewis and even into his writings and his works once again. I mean, you, you read through the Chronicles of Narnia, there are times when people are just feasting and they're just having a great time with all these delicacies to eat, you know, and, and, uh, you know, Lewis was a big fan of going on walking tours. And if you notice in almost every single one of the Chronicles of Narnia, there's, there's these epic walks at some point throughout the, the journey of that story, you know? And so he includes some of those things that he just really enjoyed about the world God had made into his, into his writing. And so that's kind of what I, I'm talking about when I said that, the world is broken, but the world still has things worth enjoying. And that's part of Christian humanism is to recognize the goodness of what God has made, that it hasn't been completely destroyed, and that we still thank and praise God and enjoy those things with the right attitude. Yeah, so I was going to ask maybe how, how can Christians learn from Lewis on that point because uh, you get some that are just very legalistic. You know, you're you're not to be in the world and – of the world and this kind of thing, and so they go so far. Uh, how, how how could Christians, I guess, maybe take something away from what what Lewis, kind of how he lived his life in that area? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the two major mistakes that we see, and we see in the New Testament of Scripture that Paul deals with both of these extremes, and one, one is licentiousness or, or, or taking advantage of God's grace and saying, well, you know, we've got God's grace, so let's keep on sinning, you know, because we're covered. We're we're covered in God's grace, and so let us sin so that his grace may abound, you know. And, and so some Christians have this kind of attitude, oh, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about my sin, you know. And, of course, Scripture says, no, absolutely, absolutely not. How can we who died just didn't still live in it, you know. And, and But on the flip side, you have uh, this kind of ascetic worldview, which says, you know, well, we have to deny ourselves all pleasure, we have to withdraw from the world completely and not take pleasure in any of it, you know. And, uh, and Paul says that's not beneficial for godliness either, you know. And so we, we as Christians need to find that, that, that balance, you know, that, that, again, this is a part of recognizing who we are 
as creatures of God and who we are in Christ and being able to affirm both that the world is broken and that there are still good things in the world and that they should be enjoyed in appropriate context or in appropriate moderation. Um, and I think by doing that, I think we present a much more winsome and attractive case uh, for Christianity as we're witnessing to people and sharing the gospel with them. Because, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times people will say, uh, Christians, you know, they're just all about killing joy and killing fun and, and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of have this attitude that we're all, you know, extremely prudish and puritanical and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, and I would rather, on the flip side, I would rather want to argue that uh, Christianity just, we get it right. Like, you know, that that all of the pleasures in this world that are genuine, Christianity can still enjoy. Christians can still enjoy them. In fact, we can enjoy them more because we don't let them dominate or rule our lives. You know, I mean, uh, a non-Christian worldview of some of the pleasures of the world, you take it to extreme, and it's no longer a pleasure. It's a vice, you know. And yet walking, walking in the Lordship of Christ and, and, and enjoying those things rightly, they become the highest pleasure we can possibly get out of those things. Yeah, and we give uh, we give glory and honor to to Christ who has given us those things. So yeah, double win. All right, man. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's take a break real quick. Uh, let me give the the number out. Jacob, are you are you willing to take phone calls? Uh, people have some questions about Lewis, or more than happy to do the best I can with that. All right, let me give out the number here, folks. It is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven, and we are going to go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll be back. If you guys like, say, feel free to call in now, and uh, we will continue with our show on C.S. Lewis with Pastor Jacob Ellie. Here's a renewing your mind minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The age-old question, has God said? That question has echoed into the 21st century, and still today many people question the reliability of God. And as Christians, we hear that the Bible is not reliable. How do you respond to somebody who says, Dr. Geyser, the Bible is not reliable? Well, my response is, um, God can't err. The Bible is the Word of God, therefore uh, the Bible cannot err. So if you're going to deny that conclusion, you have to deny one or more of those two premises. So tell me, uh, can God err? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, Romans 3, 4. The Bible says, 
uh, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6.18. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1.2. So if God can't err, and the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible claims to be the Word of God, Jesus said it's the Word of God in, in John 10, 34 and 35, and Matthew uh, 15, uh, 1 to 5, he said, you do exalt your traditions above the Word of God, and the Word of God cannot be broken in John 10, 35. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then God can't err, then the Bible can't err. Now to ask him one more question. If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, how many mistakes can an omniscient mind make? An omniscient mind can't make any mistakes, not in geography, not in history, not in science, not in anything. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then write it down. There aren't any mistakes there. Augustine, G.K. Chesterton, just some of these brilliant minds. Um, I, I often hear objections to, well, you know, these guys, uh, they were Catholics, and we shouldn't uh, shouldn't read these people again. Sometimes Lewis is, is thrown into that boat. What do you what do you say is that? As somebody that's, you know, we're we're the we're the crazies, we're the Reformed Protestants. What do we say to to those kind of charges that we shouldn't be reading people like Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm, and, and those figures. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say to that is that's just kind of dumb. I mean, <laughs> because, uh, you know, to say, to say that just because somebody, I mean, let's just assume the premise that they're all unregenerate, they're all non-Christians, you know, to assume that therefore we shouldn't read them or that they can't get anything right and that we can't learn from them, that's just foolish and arrogance. I mean, you know, if we yeah. believe that God, if we believe that God has created this world in a way, and Romans one tells us that He has, in which the, you know, His uh, divine attributes can be 
clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world so that people are without excuse, you know, throughout all of this world, throughout of all of time, throughout of all of the different civilizations, people have been able to see God in the things that he has made. Now, they, they, they exchange the truth of, about God for a lie. We know that. We know that natural revelation is not sufficient to save people. We know that. But at the same time, we can discern truth, and we can discern even truth about God uh, from that. And then all the better of people who at least uh, affirm the Scripture as the Word of God you know, you could even if you want to argue that some of these people aren't aren't really Christians, aren't really saved. I mean, they're still interacting with something that's true. And so, I think that we could, at the very least, say, well, look, there's still things we can learn here. We should be able to have discerning minds and be able to read through these works and say, wow, they nailed this. This is really good. That helps me. And then at other times, you'll say, wow, that's completely off. I will never accept that in my worldview because that doesn't fit with you know, what scripture seems to say as far as I understand it. And and so we just have to have a little bit of, I think Christian maturity is, is being able to interact with things that don't perfectly agree with you or even are coming from a completely different worldview from your own, but still being able to see that because of the way that God made this world, they still get some things right. And sometimes they get things really right, you know. And so that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say when it comes to Lewis and when it comes to, you know, like Aquinas and, and some of these other figures, you know, uh, again, you know, we're not saved by perfect theology. We're saved by faith in Christ. Um, now, where the line is between, you know, faith and works and, and like, you know, the, the Galatian heresy that we see where, uh, you know, the Judaizers were teaching a false gospel according to Paul because they were teaching, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep the law. And he says that's the gospel worthy of hell. You know, I mean, that's... That's a scary thing, and, and I, I have a hard time sometimes deciding, okay, well, where, you know, for instance, the, the Roman Catholic version of the gospel, I mean, where, how close is that really to what Paul is dealing with in Galatia? And, and I, I think it's uncomfortably close, <laughs> personally, okay? Yeah. But, but at the right. end of the day, I have to say this. What matters is whether, at the end of the day, is the person trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation and not their works. And if right. that's true... They're my brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they have errant theology, even if they have a wrong view of the relationship of faith and works. If at the end of the day they would say, my hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, I have a hard time saying that they're not believers if that's, if that's more or less what they come down to. So. Yeah, I like that. That's very, very good response. Yeah, you, know, you can eat the meat and, and spit out the bones. And uh, with C.S. Lewis, there's an awful lot of meat there. So this third point, uh, the world is not enough. The world is not enough. Explain that. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of, you know, this is kind of a, it brings us full full circle back to uh, before the world was broken and things were perfect and that's why there's still kind of this remnant of goodness in the world and things that we enjoy. I think that those are here in part to point beyond themselves and to say, man, these, these things that we really enjoy and we desire and are good, they still don't fully satisfy. They're not, they're, they're not quite enough. There's got to be something beyond them that will truly satisfy. And so I think all of the pleasures of the world that God has given us to enjoy, even in this fallen and broken state, is to say there's something more. And, and that something more is, is Christ and his kingdom and, and eternity with him. And, and so uh, I think Lewis, uh, I think Lewis recognized that as well. 
and I think that comes through um, again in, in a lot of the the writings, and I think that became a reality in his own life. Um, let me see if I can find this. I'll read a short section for you from Grief Observed. It's oh, on yeah. page seven of the edition that I have here, and and again he's dealing with the loss of his wife, and he's, he's thinking through things, and and, uh, and and just kind of struggling with them. But but he gets pretty personal about his his love life with his wife here, but he, he, he says something pretty profound about it. So um, he says, one thing, however, marriage has done for me. I can never again believe that religion is manufactured out of our unconscious, starved desires and is a substitute for sex. For those few years, H and I were feasted on love, ever more of it, solemn and merry, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes as comfortable as unemphatic and as, as unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers, no cranny of her heart or body remained unsatisfied. If God were a substitute for love, we ought to have lost all interest in him. And so he uses that wow. point to say that the satisfaction of his marital relationship still didn't bring that total satisfaction, and and so you see, uh, you know, you see similar uh, things like that that come across. Like for instance, in the Great Divorce, you've got an instance where, you know, there is one one person, and and you know, these people that that have come on this bus ride from from hell to the the edge of heaven, they have the opportunity to stay there if they wish, you know, but they are all dealing with different sin and different vices in their life, and they have. Um, you know, redeemed people talking to them, or in some cases they have angels talking to them and trying to convince them to let go of their sin and enjoy the, the glory of heaven, you know. And you've got one person who, who has this uh, this lizard that's kind of sitting on his shoulder and whispering to him, and, and apparently this, this lizard represents lust. It represents, you know, some sort of sexual lust in his life that has consumed him. And the angel, there's this burning angel that wants to take it from him, and he keeps asking, can I kill it? Can I kill it? You know, and, and finally the guy gives him permission, and when, he, and when the angel then kills this lizard, it falls to the ground and dies, and it becomes this beautiful stallion. And the man himself is transformed into this you know, glorious state, and he rides off from the stallion up into the mountains, up, you know, further up and further in toward where God is, you know. And this, there's a statement after seeing all this, uh, you know, Lewis is, is talking um, with George MacDonald, who is kind of his, his master, his tutor while he's there, you know. And he makes this statement. He says, lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. And so all of these all of these desires we have, even sinful ones or even you know righteous desires, they really all point beyond themselves to something much greater, a desire that cannot be satisfied in this world. And so that's that's what I'm getting at when I say the world is not enough. You know, is that we we see this kind of this full picture when we put these three puzzle pieces together of of Christian humanism that the world is broken. There are still things really worth enjoying in this world and taking great pleasure in, but frankly. It just won't satisfy. There's got to be more. Yeah, I think that third point. I think uh, Peter Kreeft uh, argues that in his uh, Christian uh, Handbook of Apologetics uses that as one of the one of the twenty arguments for God's existence. And I, he may have got that from C.S. Lewis uh, about uh, you know if you have a desire or a, something a longing for in this world that or that nothing in this world can 
can uh, fit and, and quench than it would speak to it being uh, in the afterlife, in the afterworld. So pretty, it's going to yeah, be I think, kind of an interesting argument. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a very, it's, I find it very persuasive personally. I, I, I see, um, I actually see the, the trend in our country right now and, and probably around the world really uh, of the love for superhero movies. I see this as something of an of a argument for desire in and of itself because I think what you see is there's such an attraction to the idea of hero figures who step into the world and who are above the law but embody the spirit of the law to do what the law can't. <laughs> and and they, are, yeah. they are Christ figures, essentially. They're self-sacrificing Christ figures who stand in the gap between those who are desperately needing help and the enemy. And so you, you, I think the reason that the world just, just goes heads over heels desperately seeking and, and, and enjoying movies and stories like this is because that longing in their heart exists already. And, and they're trying to find that satisfaction. And this is a, a vivid picture uh, of that kind of Christ figure that, that ultimately really needs to be satisfied in the actual Christ. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's good. I never really connected that there with the uh, with the superheroes, but that's actually a pretty good point because we, you know, we all do. We all desire justice in that, don't we? we yeah, absolutely, and, and it, it seems unattainable. You know, it's we need we need something more than just regular regular earthly justice. We need something more. And superheroes essentially fit that bill to some degree, you know, um, the, but still in a much lesser way than, than God himself will be when he consummates the world and, and Christ judges things perfectly, you know. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit, and I think we already touched on it a little bit, but maybe you wanted to add some more to this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, his experience of losing faith, embracing atheism, and returning to faith. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, um, you know, Lewis, uh, when he was nine years old, he lost his mother to cancer. Um, and that, that just absolutely had a profound effect on his life and really the, the trajectory of, of his life experiences as well. Uh, he grew up, you know, he grew up in a home with... Um, you know, being in the the Church of England, essentially, and uh, you know, he his parents were, for all intents and purposes, you know, they were they were believers, and they they tried to pass on the faith. But when Lewis was fourteen, uh, he just turned away from Christ completely and rejected it. And uh, you know, he, after his mother had died, shortly after that, his brother, and then shortly after that, his himself were sent off to boarding school. So they spent an awful lot of time away from their father, away from home. Um, and Lewis utterly hated his educational experience up until the time uh, he eventually came to be privately tutored by a guy named Kirk. Um, but that's, that's you know, significantly later. But for, he, for a while, you know, he was in these, these, um, these English public schools. And, and, and when we say public schools, it's completely different than what we think of public school here today in our country. But, you know, they were boarding schools and... Um, you know, provided a much different kind of educational experience. But anyway, all that besides the point. So he, he uh, when he's 14, he comes to the place where he's decided that Christianity is just patently false, that, that there is no, you know, personal God and that um, it's all kind of a myth. And, and the next 
frankly, the next you know 15 years or so of his life, he just gets deeper and deeper ingrained in that way of thinking. Um, he, you know, he when he does eventually get out of the kind of the boarding school system and he gets to be privately tutored by um, uh, Mr. Kirkpatrick, you know, he really gets ingrained in his atheism because Kirk is a is a is a hardcore atheist himself, you know, and and he starts to kind of get more of a uh, academic argument against Christianity and, and trying to demonstrate that Christianity is just another myth like all the other myths that um, have ever existed, you know, the Greek and Roman and Norse myths. You know, Lewis was a huge fan of the Norse mythology. And, um, but, but he just said Christianity is really just another one of those, you know, and dying and rising gods and all this kind of stuff. And, and so he, he became very ingrained in that um, perspective. Um, and, and then you can imagine the experiences uh, of World War One and, and the tragedy of war and seeing buddies die just, just probably kind of really reaffirmed to him for some time that, hey, there's if there's a good God in heaven, he's not interested, you know. <laughs> and um, so anyway, so he, he goes to Oxford after the war and, uh, you know, he he earns a couple of first-ranked first degrees there in uh, philosophy and in literature and and um, anyway, so eventually he gets to be, become a don at Oxford. He gets to become a professor at Oxford. And uh, he starts, you know, making different acquaintances and friends. He eventually meets uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, who's the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and Tolkien was a Roman Catholic, uh, but a devout one, a devout um, committed to, to Jesus. And, um, you know, he becomes a pretty influential figure in Lewis's life and, and several other you know, people uh, begin to be in Lewis's life that just witness towards Jesus and pointing Lewis towards Jesus. And and uh, there was a time uh, when Lewis was, I think, about maybe 29 or so years old uh, that he was in his um, his private rooms at Oxford, and he had a had a person who he described as the most hard-boiled atheist he'd ever known, uh, who who was standing there talking to him and. And he was talking about, you know, the concept of the, the dying and rising gods and, and how, um, you know, they'd all just kind of assumed Christianity is just like that. And he said, you know, the rum thing about it is it, it seems like maybe it actually happened once. You know, the evidence for the Gospels is, is pretty good. And that statement just really, really affected Lewis. I mean, this is this is a guy that he's a, a bedrock atheist. And, and even after that time, Lewis says that guy never became a Christian. He never, ever you know, walked away from his atheism, but still that admission that the evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is actually pretty solid was profound to Lewis. And then uh, not long after that, he would have a conversation with Tolkien uh, and another person whose name is escaping my, my mind at the moment, and they were discussing again more of this idea of, uh, you know, how Christianity is it's just really another myth, you know, and, and uh, Tolkien makes, you know, the statement essentially that all of these other uh, religions and worldviews throughout history, they've all been reaching at something that's objectively true. He kind of made a statement about it being like splintered light. They got little pieces, you know, this this natural revelation. They were reaching at something that's really true. And the thing that's unique about Christianity is that it's actually, it's a myth that is actually true. You know? <laughs> and so, so that, that concept of, of Christianity being a myth that's true really just really resonated with Lewis and, and he couldn't really shake it and and eventually, you know, Lewis went from being an atheist to accepting kind of a form of deism to eventually not being able to shake it anymore and and, and 
bending his knee to the Lordship of Jesus. And, and he didn't do it kind of in a, in a, a funny way. He didn't do it willingly. You know, I mean, it was really a, he fought it as long as he could and finally said, okay, you win, <laughs> give up. Um, and so and then you do see after that time how Lewis, you know, I mean, at first I, I think you know, truly Lewis came to the Lordship of Jesus first and then he came to love Jesus a little bit later. Wow. That is interesting. That's wow. Seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven is the number to call folks. Seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven if you have a uh, a question for Pastor Jacob and regarding life works, thought and theology of C. S. Lewis, give us a call. Got about fifteen more minutes in the show and uh I would love to Love to hear from you and uh, interact with you, so feel free to uh, give us a call. Uh, Pastor Jacob, one of the one of the things uh, Lewis is really known for is his fiction work, and uh, yeah. I myself really never read that. I'm just not into fiction for some reason. I need to I need to at least some point in my life read some of this work. What are what are uh, some of the popular works he's written uh, in fiction? And what's kind of the the story behind the the book, the message behind the book, the books? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is the seven you know seven different volumes of works, um, all taking place in this land that he created called Narnia. And, and Narnia is kind of, in a way, it's kind of his own Middle Earth. You know what I mean? That Tolkien created a Middle Earth for all the Lord of the Rings series. Narnia is Lewis's world that he created. Um, and you see you've got those seven books. You also have a trilogy that he did at the Space Trilogy, uh, with, with the main character's name is Ransom and those. And and to be perfectly honest, I haven't finished reading those, so I can't come I can't comment completely on those. Um and then, you know, you have a few various other uh, uh fictional works. You've got the Screwtape Letters, which is um is uh a demon named Screwtape uh writing letters to his young nephew Wormwood teaching him how to be an effective demon and how to lead people astray and keep them away from Christ, or even after they come to Christ, to keep them from being effective for Christ, you know. And, and you also have the first book that Lewis wrote as a Christian was uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, which a lot of people are probably familiar with, Pilgrim's Progress, right? And so it's a, it's a very similar uh, allegorical tale, but it's really Lewis's kind of own conversion story told in an allegorical format, Um but out of all of you know all, all the fiction works that Lewis has written, by far the Chronicles of Narnia are my favorite uh, because of the way he creates this this world and the way I, I see the, the kind of the argument for desire that we talked about earlier. I see that as one of the major thrusts of the entire work of all seven of those books. I think that's kind of a thread that ties them together personally. Um, but you have Aslan, who is this uh, lion, you know, he's a talking lion, and he's He's essentially he's the Christ figure in in Narnia, and uh, you know I don't, I don't want to really just ruin this for anybody who hasn't read it. So if you if you haven't read Narnia yet and you really want to, you don't want anything. You should stop listening right now. But you know <laughs> what what you do come to see at the very end of the entire series, the last battle, you know that this this Aslan he's not just Aslan the lion. He's actually Jesus. You know, and and the the, the book stops stops short of just saying that, but that's the clear implication is that, you know, that the way that, that Christ manifests himself in Narnia is, is 
you know, as, as Aslan, right? But, you know, he's really, he's the same Jesus that we know in our world. And there's, there's a point where, uh, you know, the children who are, who are drawn into Narnia um, in the Voids of the Dawn Treader, which is the third book in the series, um, you know, as they are about to go back to their world, you know, he tells some of them that they won't be back, you know, and he says, you must learn to know me by my other name. And so what Lewis has done in the Chronicles of Narnia is portray the the portrait of Christ, the the message of the gospel, and, and his various other themes and doctrines and, and truth through these, you know, uh, I don't know if allegory is exactly the right word, but, but through these kind of parallel stories and pictures, you know, and so by reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, you're getting a lot of Christian theology and you're, I think, learning to love Christ by learning to love Aslan. And it's a really beautiful way of community, communicating Christian theology through fictional stories. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a really brilliant mind <laughs> to be able to, to do that, you know, to be able to put all those pieces of the puzzle together and at the end, have a beautiful picture of the gospel and of of Christ through a through story. Yeah, and and I mean the the way he he does it is just it's so powerful. I mean, uh, you know, Aslan, this this massive lion. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a a scary, you know, dreadful thing on one hand, and yet everybody just they really just want to touch him. You know what I mean? Like, and so you have this you have this beautiful picture of of the fear of the Lord and yet the desire to be with him, you know? And, and so uh, when, when in the, um, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, before the children have met Aslan, they're talking to Mr. And Mrs. Beaver, you know, and, and uh, they're talking about Aslan and him being a lion. And one of the children asks, well, is he safe? And, and <laughs> Mr. Beaver says, safe. Of course he isn't safe. He, uh, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, you know, and so the idea of communicating the, the fear of God, essentially, you know, that, that, no, of course he's not safe. He's great and terrible and powerful, but he's good. And it's just a very powerful picture. Right. Uh, let's, uh, real kind of quickly, let's talk a little bit about Lewis's education. What, uh, what did that look like? Yeah, well, uh, like I said, I mean, you have, um, when he was very young, he went to kind of a boarding school. He had uh, three different schools he went to before he became privately tutored. One he was only at for a little more than a month, but that was his favorite of those three, unfortunately. Uh, but his first experience was at a school uh, called Winyard, uh, which was ran by a man who was actually later declared insane. <laughs> and, uh, wow. you know, you, you look at the situation there, Lewis to some degree, got off easy because the, the head headmaster just kind of liked him, you know. Um, but Lewis would say later that had he been had he been there uh, another two years, his hope of ever, you know, really becoming an, a scholar would have died at that school because it, it was so dysfunctional and the way it was ran and the, the children weren't really learning anything. Um, some of them were were flat out being abused more or less, and and. Um, Anyway, so it was a, it was an awful scenario, um, and but that school ended up closing because, you know, for some reason the headmaster couldn't attract enough students to keep it open. I can't imagine why, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so after that, and that was a that was an English school, 
After that, he came home for a short time. Because, you know, Lewis is actually, a lot of people maybe don't know this, but Lewis is actually Irish. Uh, Lewis was born in Ireland, and uh, that's, you know, that's his heritage, even though he lived and worked as an adult entirely in England. Um, but anyway, so he, he came to a school in, uh, in Ireland for just a, a short time, but he got sick and had to come be at home for a little while, and his father decided that he wanted to send him back to an English school. And, and that school that he was at there was, was something he enjoyed more than any of the other three that he went to. But um, his father had a great desire for, for Lewis to be, you know, a true English gentleman and, and wanted him to be, uh, you know, taught in those schools. And that was kind of a status uh, status symbol for for Irish middle class and upper upper wealth, you know, class in Ireland to send their kids to England to be trained, and so, uh, so he went to uh, another school after that and uh, was there up until the time that he was uh, taken out of that to be privately tutored by uh, Kirkpatrick, who actually had been his father's tutor and had actually uh, tutored his his brother. Uh, Warney as well and helped him uh, to get into the military academy and, and all kinds of things. So, but um, so when he got to uh, when he got to be privately tutored by Kirk, that's really when he came alive academically. Now he did pretty well in the school before that, much better than he had in that that first situation. Um, but they really um, there were kind of almost political situations in the school with the the uh some of the older students and some of the students that came from kind of a uh a higher um you know wealth or whatever they were he called them the, the blood you know and, and they would basically force uh less important students to do all the grunt work and all this kind of stuff and so Lewis found himself not only trying to keep up with school work but you know polishing kids' shoes and all kinds of things that he just utterly despised you know and so when he he came under you know private uh, private tutoring under Kirk, I mean that's where he really came alive. And, and Kirk was uh, the most logical and rational man he ever knew. And and uh, he he drilled him hard, learning uh, Latin and and French and German and 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 really studying these great books and works. And um, and that's where Lewis really uh, blossomed, I guess you would say. And uh, and and at the end of that time, he came. Uh, to be accepted into Oxford, which was immediately interrupted by World War One, and he he joined uh, he actually voluntarily joined World War One because he was Irish. He didn't technically have to go, but he felt that he didn't have the right to stay out of that when so many others were, you know, giving their lives for that cause, basically. Um, but after after that, he returned to Oxford, um, and uh, and one of the one of the things that's humorous kind of is Lewis was just horrible at math. I mean, just just terrible at math. Uh, in fact, he had to take uh, some different tests to officially be accepted into Oxford, um, and he couldn't hardly pass. He couldn't pass the math exam at all, and they waived it because of his service in the military. Um, but had he not had that service in the military, Lewis probably would never have been in Oxford nor graduated from Oxford. Um, so <laughs> that's very <Wow>. providential. <laughs> um, but he goes on to do very well, and, and uh, worth going to the war just to get out of the math class, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, that makes me feel good too because I'm terrible at math. You know, I think, well, if a brilliant guy like Lewis can stink at math, then I guess I'm in decent company. But, um, but you know, after that, he he then eventually gets to become a don, a, a professor at Oxford, 
and so that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of his educational landscape. Well, very good, very good. Uh, take uh, take a minute or two and uh, kind of wrap us up, close us up as far as uh, what what we as Christians can uh, take away from from Lewis. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that's um, that's so great about Lewis is his ability to speak uh, on on multiple levels. He could speak on the academic level supreme. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy, and yet he also wrote, wrote children's books, and they're you know they're classics. They're just wonderful, and they and so Lewis Lewis found a way to be uh, a communicator that people could understand, and he could speak to any different level. And I think that we need to we need to try and pattern ourselves after Lewis in that regard. We need to be able to, as Christians and especially as apologists defending the Christian faith, we need to be able to have a very high level academic response and make a case for Christianity. But we also need to be able to speak to just the average person in a way that they can understand and communicate the gospel to them and communicate a rational defense of the Christian faith that is that is just in, in straightforward, plain terms that everybody can understand. And I think that's exactly, you know, what he does in Mere Christianity, for instance. It's a very readable book for, for most people, um, and yet, you know, it's a very, he makes very powerful arguments for Christ and for, for God. And so um, we need to look to Lewis's example of, of being able to speak to different people. I think we need to look to Lewis's example of being able to communicate uh, the Christian worldview in in uh, non-fiction literature and academic literature, but also being able to communicate the Christian worldview through fiction. I think that's a, that's an area that more Christian apologists should probably think about exploring is communicating the gospel in the same way that he uh, communicated the Christian worldview through Narnia, through the uh, Space Trilogy. And I think there needs to be more of that. Well, I really do appreciate you coming on, Jacob. It's been a great show, and uh, I definitely feel like I have learned a lot more about C.S. Lewis than I knew, and I uh, actually feel kind of inspired to read some more of his books. So uh, what are what are a few of his books, maybe for people who are beginners? Uh, what, are, what are a couple of his books that you'd recommend? Well, yeah, Mere Christianity is a must-read. Um, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, I mean, they're, again, they're originally written to children, so it's, it shouldn't be a, a difficult read for most people. I, I would really hardly recommend uh, those. They'll just be enjoyable, but again, you, you can see the Christian themes all throughout them, and, and the way it's communicated is beautiful. Um, you know, just depending on what you want to do, I mean, there's, there's so many things. Lewis spoke on so many issues, it's hard to, to recommend just so broadly, but, you know, The Great Divorce is a fantastic read that, that many will enjoy, I think. And then if you want to see Lewis, at, at, I think, at his top, doing apologetics on various issues, there's a book called God in the Dock, which is a collection of essays um, and, and uh, things that he has written, and he's submitted them to different articles and publications. And, and uh, he covers a wide variety of issues of, of presenting and defending the Christian faith on a whole, whole range of issues. And so I think you see kind of a diversity in Lewis by getting that book. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, appreciate you being on the show, uh, Pastor Jacob, and we look to having you on again in the future sometime. That'd be great. Love to do it. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate you coming on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. And uh, join us next week 
uh, we are going to be dealing with Islam. It'll be on a special night. Uh, it'll be on Tuesday the uh, the 19th. I believe it's Tuesday. Let me check real quick here. Uh, yes, on the 19th, and we are going to be tackling Islam. So you guys don't want to miss that. And then on the 20th, looks like the 28th, we are going to have uh, Ken Samples on the show. And I'm uh, really excited for that. We're going to look at his, view, at his book, uh, Without a Doubt, uh, which is a very good uh, book defending the Christian faith. So I ask you guys to be with us. Join us next week. Pray you guys have a uh, wonderful week. If you haven't liked us on Facebook yet, make sure you go to www.facebook.com slash theologymatters with the Palouse and follow us on Facebook. Appreciate you guys, and we will see you next week. God bless.